I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Good morning, Tim. I'm very well. That's good. We're also joined by the Professor of Public Policy and Economics at Stony Brook University, Stephanie Kelton. Thank you for joining us. Thank you both for having me. Stephanie, one of the most interesting things you brought up immediately on Friday afternoon was Keynes's plan for dealing with how to pay for World War II. You know, as a wonderful example of you can you know, resource a problem, you can resource policy without you know, catastrophic economic problems. And I got all excited that night and you know, read the whole thing, as, well, listened to the whole thing as bednight reading. It was two hours of Keynes at 11 o'clock at night, which is not really very sensible. Could you please help us understand why this is so important to understand? Well, I can sure try. I think that what Keynes did in that little book was so important because, you know, this is the maybe the most important parallel in terms of what we're thinking about. Many countries are starting to think about with respect to addressing the climate crisis. And they're saying what we need is a mass mobilization of resources to fight the climate emergency. How do you transform an economy that is oriented currently around really producing for consumers and doing so in an extractive way that involves reliance on fossil fuels. How do you transition away from that to clean, sustainable energy sources in a way that basically requires you to touch almost every part of the economy? How we live, you know, sustainable housing, how we eat, small-scale sustainable agriculture, how we get around transportation. So it's an enormous endeavor. And I look back at the way Keynes was thinking about doing that for the war effort. How do you mobilize mass resources and transform an economy, again, away from one that's oriented around producing for consumer goods to one that is oriented around producing for the war effort? So Keynes's insights there are reminding us that What is important is the economy's capacity to generate the real resources as distinct from the financial or money resources. When Keynes wrote how to pay for the war, it wasn't, where are we going to find all of the British pounds that we're going to need to pay soldiers and seamstresses and, you know, people to produce munitions. It was, how are we going to actually produce the stuff, the aircraft carriers, bombers, whatever, right, uniforms? And so what he does is help us focus on the question that matters, the real resources, and the enormous challenge involved in doing something on a pretty short timescale. With World War II, obviously, you had to jump immediately into action. We have a little bit more time to begin planning when it comes to climate, but not a lot. If we're taking the scientific community seriously, then we're thinking this is something we really have to accomplish in something like a decade So what lessons can we learn from the success that they had in doing what they did to mobilize resources during the war effort, managing the inflation through that transition in the same kind of way that we would have to do if we were going to aggressively tackle the climate crisis? Now, managing inflation, this seems to be the big, the the most important thing, again, as a non-economist, I realize this is where I, I hit my own form of not cognitive dissonance, but I just don't know enough. So what I took away from reading Keynes is you've got three critical things you need to do. You need the people to stop spending all the money they earn from the extra economic activity so that prices don't up and you don't get inflation. And there seem to be three ways in that. You can tax them to take money out of spending, but not in a sense to pay for stuff, but just to stop spending. You can defer spending 
by you know almost like a, a weird variant of superannuation or put it away now to spend later. And you can also use social security to make sure that by taking spending power away from people now, you can make sure they've got a bottom line where they're still okay. Did I get the three big bits reasonably right? You did. Well, you you did. I'm, it's remarkable. You listened at it eleven o'clock at night and managed to absorb Keynes's main takeaways. So yeah, well done there. The point is exactly what you said. It's to recognize that the government is going to be spending a lot of money in World War II. Obviously, a huge ramp up in government spending. And if we're doing climate, we're going to have similar sorts of increases in the federal budget. And so the challenge is, how do you remove spending power, or as you said, convince people to delay their consumption until later, so that the government can come in, spend, make a variety of investments, spending into the economy without layering the government's own spending on top of already high levels of consumption spending. So you've got to, in a sense, find ways to balance the total amount of spending in the economy so that as the government increases its contribution, you diminish or decrease other types of spending so that the aggregate amount doesn't push the economy beyond its speed limit pushing prices higher. And what became obvious, so my morning reading this morning was how to pay for the Green Deal by a couple of the people from, what is it, the Levy Institute that you were talking about yesterday. And they were giving the example of the inflation figures from World War II. And inflation gets away a little bit about the middle of the war and then gets back under control. So the whole point with this is you can't preempt the problem entirely. You just keep adjusting to manage. So it's a thing of constant marginal adjustment. Is that sort of a correct assessment of how you have to apply the counterinflationary policies? I think so. I mean, you're going to do your best to get out in front of it. The ideal situation would be not to have to chase inflation after it happens. So if you could perfectly coordinate everything and have no impact whatsoever and let inflation stay at about its 2% target, that'd be the ideal scenario. But realistically, you're not going to be able to do that. Okay. There are going to be bottlenecks in certain industries. Prices are going to begin to increase, maybe wage pressure. And so you're going to have to react in real time to some of that the way they did during and after the war. We had incomes policies. People negotiated with labor unions and industry and said, we're going to cap wage increases. And we're going to tell businesses that you can't increase prices. There were a whole variety of things government did to try to manage that inflation. But you're right. They did it really, really well. There were a couple of years where inflation reached gently into the double-digit territory, 10, 11, 12 percent. But then after two years, inflation came down sharply and we were back down around the four or five percent. And then thereafter, back down around two, three percent, what we're more accustomed to. And I guess the significant thing is even when that inflation was high, you had really high levels of employment. So even though people might not be able to buy as much with their money, the reality is there were probably more money than there had been you know, available to people since before the Depression because nearly everyone was working or busy. Just the fact that you know, most young people, rather than being unemployed during the Depression, males were soldiers, females had you know, gone into industry. So even if they could buy less, they could buy something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you had workers working double and triple overtime. This is, like you say, coming out of the Great Depression. So for all of the public policies that were put in place to try to deal with the high levels of unemployment during the Great Depression, they didn't succeed in really pulling the economy out of the doldrums until World War II. And at that point, you're exactly right. Workers had jobs, you had full employment, wage workers had wages that they could rely on. And so, you know, 
to the extent that inflation happened, and that does erode some purchasing power, on balance, they were better off. The interesting thing with this too is, of course, the the Brits were able to do so much on their own, but they're also relying massively on lend-lease from America of equipment and buying resources. So they were simultaneously using their own resources for war production and lend-leasing what they needed from America. And I, I don't know how the deal worked with you know buying all the wool and wheat and everything else from Australia, whether that was the case that we were so wedded within empire, they just could. There's something interesting in that because that says that in the same way war was multiple countries involved, climate change is multiple countries involved, so that you can use your own resources at home and you can access other people's resources and you can do the two things simultaneously what can we what did we learn from world war ii about how to balance doing those two things at once that when there is a global crisis and nations partner with one another to combat that crisis that the use of resources extends beyond the domestic boundaries that you're exactly right. You're able to tap into another country's capacity to step up production, aid in the fight. And so if we were thinking about climate change, that's obviously a global crisis. We are all on this planet together. And there are countries that are, you know, pretty substantial emitters, contributors to carbon emissions that don't have the technological infrastructure to resource and fight this fight, and we're going to have to help them. We're going to have to, richer countries are going to have to help poorer developing countries in the form of real aid, real resources to allow them to continue to enjoy the electrification, they have to have access to energy and so forth, but we want to help transition them off of the fossil fuels that they're currently dependent upon. And this is going to have to involve some sort of a Marshall Plan, some sort of a commitment on the part of wealthier nations. I have a question along those lines. I mean, Britain, as you said, David, borrowed least uh, resources, let's say, from another country, namely the US, which uh, alludes to a point, which is that it is clear that some countries will be able to be self-sufficient in resources to a large extent, say the US, but smaller countries will need to find resources from other countries, which means that they can't necessarily just pay for things with their own currency. They have to buy a resource in another currency or from a different country. Britain balanced that by paying that, that debt off, I believe, to 2005 or early 2000s, as David mentioned to me the other day. something like that. I yeah. couldn't remember the exact date. It took a long time to pay that back, but managed it, right? I mean, the, the repercussions of that weren't particularly terrible. How do you manage those kinds of relationships and situations? Well, I mean, we may indeed be rethinking the international monetary order. We may need to come up with new institutions or at least new roles and responsibilities for existing institutions. What we don't want is to drive developing countries into debt so that we say, well, we're going to aid you in the purchasing of the solar panels and the other, you know, sort of technologies that you need to transition your economy to green and sustainable energy And here we're going to saddle you with debt along the way. And then we're going to force you to remain developing in perpetuity. So there are a number of things that we could imagine central banks becoming involved in helping poor countries stabilize exchange rates, for example. That's one thing. Just direct aid, grants, providing the materials directly to countries as opposed to providing them with the financing. Just put it in a container, ship it, send them what they need. The other interesting thing that seems to come out of World War Two is because you've set up this situation of deferred spending, at the end of the immediate crisis, when you end up 
entering the rebuild period, massive amounts of you know resources get to be reallocated and massive amounts of cash get to be spent differently. So after the immediate crisis, it looks like there's a, a period where it's almost like an economic storm happens. There's so much money and resources flowing that have to be redirected. Like There was a wonderful line in How to Pay for the Green New Deal where someone wrote in 1946, you know, they'd realised from World War II that taxation is not for spending. You don't have to tax to spend. Now that must have been a, a massive thing to write in 1946, going into the period of rebuilding the world. What lessons can we take away from rebuilding the world for what happens after the initial crisis of dealing with climate change? How does a new, more integrated economy tend to grow? What can we learn from history to get it right or better this time as well? So that paper, that reference, the 1946 reference is really interesting because that insight came from a guy by the name of Beardsley Rummel. That's it. It was an amazing name. Yeah. He should be a character in a Dickens exactly. novel. Exactly. Beardsley Rummel. Rummel was the head of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. He was the president of the New York Fed. You know, for someone with that title, with that stature, to come out and give this speech and, and publish the piece that he published, the title of it was Taxes for Revenue Are Obsolete. And, you know, the U.S. had gone off the gold standards. So really, you know, to fight World War II, he was saying, look, the the monetary system has changed. The space has opened up around us. We can run policy differently now because we don't have to protect gold reserves. So the government isn't dependent upon taxes, you know, withdrawing taxes in order to keep to protect the gold reserve so people wouldn't have the money and couldn't come in and, and ask for the gold. You know, you're not managing access and convertibility to gold. So you can run your fiscal policy different. The lessons that I think, if I'm understanding your question correctly. No, you that, are. Just that, from what you've said, you yeah, are. Yeah, that we can learn going forward is that we, for the most part, nations still enjoy that flexibility. We have a monetary system here. You have in Australia. We have in the U.S. The Brits have. Japan has. Lots of countries have the monetary system that would allow them to run their domestic policies around a full employment agenda, making good use, efficient use of the resources that they have, maximizing the potential domestically, and most importantly, that means full employment, sustaining full employment opportunities at home. But now we can get past these questions where everybody's always fixated on how are you going to pay for it? Where's the money going to come from? Whose taxes have to go up in order to prevent adding from the budget, adding to the deficit and so forth. So it really allows you to run your policy in a much more freed up, both from the politics that often constrain governments and from the actual economics that once constrained our ability to run policy differently. So the wonderful thing that seems that comes out of this is if we learn the lesson that it's really about resourcing, not how to pay for things, it makes politics again simply about the quality of your ideas. What kind of world do you want to build? And it's a competition between those ideas knowing that we have the know-how and the resources to resource it. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. So if you were focused on the right question, which is, I think, how do you resource whatever it is you want to do, whether it's, you know, putting more money into education, putting more money into healthcare, putting more money into infrastructure, R&D, whatever it is you want to do, there are limits, right? That's the thing. Having your own currency and not having that currency tethered to gold or anything else does open up space, but it doesn't create infinite space Mm. for any 
government, there are still limits to what you can do. And those limits are in your real economy, those resource constraints. So you still need to budget. You still need to identify priorities. Those priorities, I think, should reflect the best interest of the people living in that country. There should be public purpose involved when carrying out public policy. Ideally, you'd have elected officials saying, with the limited space we have, these are the top priorities as we understand them from the voters, from the people who to whom we're responsible. Yeah, that makes a lot of things a lot clearer. Uh, just to make it come back full loop to the the conference that we've had this last weekend, which has been fantastic. For the people who didn't attend, what would, what is necessary for them to understand about sustainable prosperity? If there's an important takeaway, it is that you know when we ask governments to take action. We see the planet on fire. We see much of this country on fire. And we press our elected officials to take action. That what we're not going to accept is an answer that says we can't afford to do that, right? We can't afford to because of the deficit, because of the commitment to so-called sound finance and delivering surpluses. What we really hope is that we're going to push that conversation in a different direction and get people focused on the things that matter, real outcomes, human outcomes, climate outcomes, not budgetary outcomes. Stephanie, is there any question that you wish we had asked you? Because we've really pushed this in the direction from what we've heard for three days, which may not be what you think is most important. Well, you didn't ask me if I had an opportunity to pet a koala. Did you have an opportunity to pet a koala, Stephanie? I did on my first day here. Uh, There's only 80,000 of them left now, right? Oh, come on, dude. We were being so positive. (laughs) Sorry. No, I did. I mean, it was was funny because I got off the plane and obviously it's a very long trip. And it was just sort of the first thing I wanted to do because the images are just gut-wrenching. And I'm on Wi-Fi on the airplane, so I'm looking at them all the way over here. And really the first, first thing I wanted to do was just get a glimpse of some that were doing all right and was it a mellow koala or did did it look sort of irate oh no he was so chill he was um being he had a handler and he was being fed and uh he was very docile that's good because when they're motivated they sound like someone's trying to start a chainsaw well we did actually (laughs) run into one not in a controlled environment but out in the wild on its own and it was uh i'm not going to make the sound but i yes you don't uh, have to and i can't Stephanie, we've kind of got through the bulk of trying to tap into your knowledge as much as we can, but we'd love to know what you're up to tomorrow night. Oh, uh, tomorrow night I am giving the Harcourt Lecture at the University of Adelaide. I was actually invited here and the real reason for my trip over was to be the Harcourt Visiting Professor this year at the University of Adelaide. So I got to commit to a couple of weeks here in this beautiful city and tomorrow night I get to give the lecture and it's really especially important and special to me because Jeff Harcourt was actually one of my professors when I was a graduate student at Cambridge University so I hadn't seen him in a number of years but I've run into him and I'm really just very delighted. Well Keynes taught Jeff and Jeff taught you. Yeah. So you got direct lineage to what we were just talking about. Wow. That's cool. Great grand student of John Maynard Keynes. (laughs) That's cool. (laughs) And finally, I believe you have a book coming out. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And is there going to be an audio book version? Hint, mm. hint, hint. The answer to both questions is yes. I Excellent. do have a book coming out. It, uh, it will be out June 9th of mm. this year. There is an audio book version we're discussing now. Who's actually going to do the voice for that? I don't think it ought to be me. I think it should be someone with a nice I think it should be you because you can say all the technical terms properly. Well, it, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But the book is called The Deficit Myth, and it will be available on June 9th. Fantastic. Excellent. 
All right. Well, I think that brings it to a wrap. Thank you very much, Stephanie, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you both for having me. Thank you. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Listener.